Okay, right now I'm in the chaotic period of trying to finish up my oral board case lists, and I'm trying to like frantically remember what in the heck I was doing way back when I was a chief resident. And thank God there is the OBG project to help remind me of some of these things. Yeah, the OBG project has been great for studying for oral boards because I'm in the exact same place as you are. What's even better is that I have their subscription service, OBG First, which allows me to create my own bookshelf so that I can go back to all the articles that I've been reading about GYN that I've forgotten. If you're a chief resident, you can get that OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, creagsrivertocoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and you can sign up. And if you're a resident, you actually can get access to the core, which is a resident curriculum. I actually have a new feature on here called the Resident Core Life Hacks Library, which I'm going to have to go check out. You can also check out the sidebar on our website to get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Today we have with us a very special guest, Dr. Amy Morrison, who is a chief resident at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and she is going to be talking to us about viral hepatitis in pregnancy. So welcome, Dr. Morrison. Hi, thank you for having me. All right. So Amy, what are our learning objectives for today? So today we are going to learn about the different subtypes of hepatitis and their effects on pregnancy. We'll also, of course, because this is an OBGYN podcast, um, learn about the risks of perinatal transmission from mother to baby, and then we'll review the prevention and treatment of infection. Awesome. So Amy, give us a little refresher because, you know, we're OBGYNs, we're not medicine doctors. So what's hepatitis anyway? Yes, I had to look this up myself. Um, Hepatitis is a viral infection of the liver. Um, And so it obviously can happen outside of pregnancy, but it is actually also one of the most common um, and serious infections that can occur in pregnancy as well. But it is a virus and they're both DNA and RNA viruses. So patients can present with very vague symptoms, malaise, fatigue, anorexia, Um, But in particular, if somebody in pregnancy presents with jaundice, you definitely want to have hepatitis on your differential, um, as well as things like acute fatty liver of pregnancy, HELP syndrome, cholestasis of pregnancy, Uh, but definitely hepatitis should be on there as well. Right. And I remember kind of with just the very vague things about hepatitis, that there's like alphabet soup of hepatitis. Now there's like A, B, C, D. Am I getting them all? And E. Okay. (laughs) So I guess kind of maybe we should just go through it like the alphabet and just do a little rundown of each of the hepatitides. Hepatitis A, let's start there. So hepatitis A is one that we don't see too commonly here, um, but it's an RNA virus and it's most commonly um, transmitted by fecal oral contamination. So Commonly, you'll hear about it um, from children who are asymptomatic, but may transmit it to their parents um, and in situations where there's poor hand hygiene or poor food handling. Um, So that's hepatitis A. The complications are fairly rare. Um, Most people will either be asymptomatic or have symptoms that resolve um, um, within a couple of months. Um, But thankfully, there's no risk of chronic infection. So unlike the other hepatitis or hepatitis that we'll go over, um, hepatitis A is usually self-resolving. 
All right, well, so Amy, that's A. Let's go over B. And I remember from medical school that, you know, B and D kind of go together. They do. Um, so hepatitis B is it's a small DNA virus. Um, and unlike hepatitis A, that's transmitted via the fecal oral route. Um, hepatitis B is transmitted parenterally or via sexual contact. So your patients that have um, high-risk sexual behavior with multiple sexual partners or IV drug users, those are really the ones that you want to think about um, with high risk in terms of exposure to hepatitis B. And hepatitis D, I'll mention just briefly, but it does go together with B. So one cannot occur without the other. So hepatitis D can have a hepatitis B infection either at the same time or afterwards. And interestingly, hepatitis B is usually not a chronic infection. Only about 10 to 15% of patients will develop chronic infection. Um, but with hepatitis D, you can think of it as just a more serious infection. So they'll develop, more patients will develop chronic infection more quickly. So about 70 to 80% of patients with hepatitis D will get cirrhosis and portal hypertension. Um, and that can happen as quickly as two years, whereas a very small subset um, of hepatitis B, less than 5%, will get chronic liver disease like cirrhosis or hepatocellular carcinoma. All right. So maybe we jump now to the one that we missed in between, hepatitis C. Um, and that's another chronic one, right? So hepatitis C um, is similar to hepatitis B in that it's usually transmitted parenterally. Um, and so it used to be more commonly transmitted through blood transfusions, actually. Um, but now with the improved screening of blood, that risk is about one in a million for screened blood. And actually the more common route of transmission um, for hepatitis C is through IV drug use. So whereas hepatitis B, only 10 to 15% of patients become chronically infected, um, at least 50% of those with hepatitis C will progress to chronic infection. Um, and 20% of those will develop hepatitis or cirrhosis. So definitely, um, if a patient has hepatitis C, something you want to follow um, and potentially treat. And then I think last is hepatitis E, which I feel like I don't really hear very much about. Yes. But the reason you don't hear very much about it is because it's actually not very common at all in the U.S. Um, it's more common in developing countries, and it's similar to hepatitis A in that it's transmitted via the fecal-oral route. And in non-pregnant patients, it's actually um, fairly self-limited and can be mild. Um, but the reason it's important for us is because it has a very high maternal mortality rate in pregnancy. So pregnant women who do get hepatitis E, um, the mortality rate can be as high as 20% in the third trimester. Okay. Well, Amy, thanks for that. That was super helpful in terms of remembering all of those different hepatitis viruses um, and what exactly they do. I think one of the things that even I still get tripped up on is exactly how to test for hepatitis and interpreting hepatitis tests themselves. I remember particularly with B, it's kind of a funky thing. Um, but maybe just like we just did going A through E, we do the same thing and go A through E for testing. Now. So tell me about testing for hepatitis A. So testing for hepatitis A is actually fairly straightforward. Um, if you are worried that a patient may have an acute infection, like most infections, you can just test the serum for IgM antibodies. And um, like we mentioned before, there's no chronic infection, um, but patients who do have IgG antibodies, you can assume they've either had a past infection or a vaccination. 
Hepatitis B is a lot more complicated. I'm sure everybody remembers from step one, the windows and the different graphs. Um, but in general, there are three sort of really important parts to the serum testing for hepatitis B. Um, the first one we think about usually is hepatitis B surface antigen. This is the one that's present on the surface of the virus and circulates freely in the serum. And so um, that's hepatitis B surface antigen. Hep B core antigen actually doesn't freely circulate in the serum. It's only on liver cells. And then hepatitis E antigen, if present, um, usually indicates high viral load and active viral replication. So patients who are positive for hepatitis B E antigen are usually highly infectious. Um, so it's a little bit beyond the scope of the podcast as to the timing and the windows um, for hepatitis B. But in general, anybody in pregnancy um, who has a positive hepatitis B surface antigen should be further worked up for either acute or chronic infection of hepatitis B. For hepatitis C, um, also fairly straightforward. Um, typically, you can test for the hepatitis C antibody. Um, the only tricky thing about this is that it can take six to 10 weeks after the onset of symptoms for that to be positive. So if your clinical suspicion is high enough, you can also test the serum for hepatitis C viral RNA load. Awesome. Thanks so much for that, Amy. So um, we can definitely put that graph that I think everyone is thinking about um, with all of the different timelines for all of the different like surface core envelope antigens on our website so that you can review that because I definitely have seen that on, on our um, CREOG test before. Um, but let's move on now, Amy, to like prevention and treatment, because I think this is one of those things where, you know, I kind of get tripped up and we're like, okay, what can we treat in pregnancy? When should we treat? Um, so talk to us a little bit about that. So I, I'll do the alphabet soup again and go from A through E. Um, so hepatitis A and B fortunately have vaccines that can both be um, administered to prevent infection in the first place. Um, so for hepatitis A, um, most patients do not get hepatitis A vaccine, but some should, um, particularly patients who are traveling to endemic areas with hepatitis A should get the vaccine. Um, and any patients who may be at increased risk of infection or complications from liver disease. So anybody who we already know has chronic liver disease, anyone who has drug use, um, anyone who has high-risk sexual behaviors should all be um, treated prophylactically with Hep A vaccine. And then similarly for Hep B, um, there's also a vaccine available. I think all of us as healthcare providers have been um, vaccinated against Hepatitis B. Other patients who can get the vaccine are hemodialysis patients, people with known IV drug use, high-risk sexual behaviors, and again, traveling to endemic areas. The hepatitis A and hepatitis B vaccine can be given separately or together, and they're actually both safe in pregnancy. So if you have a pregnant patient who you think um, may be at high risk of exposure or high risk of contracting hepatitis A or B, um, it's perfectly safe to give them these vaccines in pregnancy. Um, for patients who have been exposed to hepatitis A and hepatitis B, um, there is post-exposure treatment for both of them. Um, for hepatitis A and hepatitis B, um, patients who are exposed should get the vaccine as well as immune globulin, ideally within 24 hours of exposure, but not more than 14 days afterwards. So if somebody had a known exposure a month ago, um, the vaccine and immune, immune globulin might not be helpful at that point, um, but you can certainly test them and go from there. 
In general, patients who have acute hepatitis can be managed outpatient with just supportive care. Um, the only instances in which patients need to be um, hospitalized are anyone with sequelae of chronic or acute liver failure. So things like encephalopathy, coagulopathy, or severe debilitation should be hospitalized. Otherwise, they can just be managed as an outpatient. Um, and because hepatitis can cause um, liver enlargement or hepatomegaly, all patients should be counseled to avoid upper abdominal trauma. So no soccer playing um, and to avoid contact with their household members until they're treated um, or their family members get the appropriate treatment as well. And one question I think that comes up a lot too, Amy, for obstetricians no, not is just the treatment aspects, as you mentioned, but is really in the risk of transmissibility to the fetus. Um, no, and what labor practices need to change, what things can I do or not do? You mentioned that treatments kind of for at least acute hep A, hep B, and vaccination are safe in pregnancy. Um, but how do we reduce risk of perinatal transmission, particularly for hepatitis B and C? Yes. So that is very important. Um, and there are things that we can do to minimize um, transmission, thankfully. Hepatitis B, like I mentioned, when contracted as an adult, um, typically does not result in chronic infection. But interestingly, when it is um, transmitted from mom to baby, babies who are infected, up to 95% of them will actually go on to develop chronic infection. So it's really important to prevent that vertical transmission. Um, to prevent um, getting chronic infection in the baby. And so because of that, ACOG actually recommends that we do routine prenatal screening of all pregnant women for hepatitis B surface antigen. Um, and that should actually be done in the first trimester. And then something I learned was that it should actually be repeated in the third trimester for patients who are at high risk of contracting it. So the first step is just identifying it um, and screening for it. And then there are a couple of things to do if you get a patient or a result um, with a positive hepatitis B surface antigen. Um, the first thing is just to do further testing to figure out if this is an acute infection or a chronic infection. So that is checking further labs like LFTs. Um, we briefly mentioned it, but the hepatitis B core, um, IgM antibodies, the hepatitis E antigen and antibody as well. Um, checking the hep B viral load, and then checking for co-infections that can come along with um, hepatitis B. So still checking for hepatitis C um, and HIV. I know that HIV uh, at our institution at least is um, part of routine prenatal care, but hepatitis C isn't. Um, and ACOG doesn't recommend it unless patients are engaged in high-risk behavior. Um, but it's certainly if somebody already has hepatitis B surface antigen positivity, they should be screened for that as well. And then once those results are back, depending on the viral load, there are a couple of things that you can do. If the viral load is less than 200,000 international units per ml or less than a million per ml, um, moms do not need treatment and they can just be rescreened with a repeat viral load between 24 and 28 weeks. Um, if at that point or at any point the viral load is above those thresholds, so above 200,000 international units per ml or above 1 million copies per ml, then antiviral um, treatment is recommended. Um, so at our institution, at least, the recommendation is for tenofovir. Um, it's actually safe in pregnancy and has minimal side effects. And so that's something that by reducing the viral load in mom can 
reduce the risk of transmission to baby. Um, and then if mom either has happy po positivity or if the happy status of mom is unknown at the time of, of delivery, so say she comes in with no prenatal care, um, then the baby should also receive hep B immunoglobulin and the hep B vaccine within 12 hours of birth. And that's actually been incredibly effective um, in reducing transmission by up to 95%. Importantly, two things to note though, um, that giving immunoglobulin and the hep B vaccine will not prevent infection of hep B in baby if the baby's already been infected in utero. Um, and it's still important for the babies to complete the entire vaccine series. So not just the one that's given 12 hours um, after birth, but even beyond that. So that's the great news for Hep B is that we screen for it. There's a way to reduce the viral load um, and treat baby for it. It's a little bit less clear for hepatitis C. Like I mentioned, we don't universally screen for it. But unlike Hep B, where there's a high rate of transmission from mom to baby, the vertical transmission rate is a little bit lower in hepatitis C. So it's about two to eight percent if mom has detectable um, HCV viral load um, in serum. If the viral load is undetectable, that vertical transmission rate is even lower. But unfortunately, unlike hep B, where we can treat um, the viral load in pregnancy, in hep C, there's not great data um, as to antiretroviral treatment for a hep C in pregnancy. So even with moms with a high viral load, there's not much we can do prior to delivery to reduce that um, viral load in mom. So that's really great to know, and it's good to know that we actually have treatment for hepatitis B during pregnancy. I think one thing that sometimes, you know, we get questions about is would having hepatitis B or hepatitis C, like the chronic infection, change anything about the labor and birth course? That's a great question. So it shouldn't change anything in terms of mode of delivery. So if somebody was going to be induced or have a vaginal delivery, they should not be offered a C-section just because of um, hep B or hep C infection. Um, so it doesn't change the mode of delivery, but there are things that we can do in labor and during the labor process to reduce the risk of infection. So things like avoiding an FSE, avoiding prolonged rupture of membranes, and avoiding anything where there could be any exchange of blood between mom and baby, like episiotomy. Um, so doing those things, in theory, um, could help reduce the risk of infection from mom to baby. You've mentioned kind of some things about baby already with respect to vaccination and monitoring. One of the other big questions that we often face, especially at 5 a.m. on postpartum rounds, or maybe more like 7 a.m. on postpartum rounds, is about breastfeeding um, with hepatitis. What can you tell us about that or any other postpartum considerations that we should be counseling new parents about? Absolutely. So thankfully, breastfeeding is not contraindicated with hepatitis. So um, moms with hep A, hep B, hep C are all and should be encouraged to breastfeed um, with a couple of caveats. So if mom has hepatitis B, she's safe to breastfeed as long as baby has received the hep B vaccine and the hep B immune globulin, like we talked about within 12 hours. So as long as baby has been appropriately treated, it's safe to breastfeed. Um, and then again, it's safe if mom does not have any cracked or bloody nipples. Um, so that would just expose baby to blood. Um, so as long as mom's skin is intact, it should be safe to breastfeed. And then of course with hep A, because it's fecal oral, mom should also be counseled per usual, but especially with hepatitis A, 
um, to have adequate um, and proper hand hygiene before handling baby. Amy, thank you again so much for coming on to our podcast. This is really, really great information about hepatitis in pregnancy. So um, let's go ahead and try to summarize, Nick. All right. So as a reminder, hepatitis is a general overview is a viral infection of the liver um, that can cause vague symptoms such as malaise, fatigue, anorexia, right upper quadrant epigastric pain, and include physical exam symptoms like jaundice, upper abdominal tendus, or hepatomegaly. We care about it, though, because it can be severe, lead to coagulopathy, encephalopathy, or even death. There are five types of hepatitis that affect pregnancy, letters A, B, C, D, and E. Going very quickly through them, hepatitis A, remember, is a small RNA virus that is usually transmitted in the fecal-oral route and usually um, caused by children who are usually asymptomatic as well as poor hand hygiene or food handling. It's very rare to get serious complications from hepatitis A, and it does not cause chronic infection. Hepatitis B is a small DNA virus that is transmitted primarily parenterally and through sexual contact. Those who are at risk, IV drug users, patients with multiple sexual partners, and other high-risk sexual behaviors. Mortality of hepatitis B approaches 1%. One of the things important about it, though, is that it can result in chronic infection in up to 10 to 15% of folks. A small subset of those chronically infected may be at further risk of chronic liver disease. Alongside this, hepatitis D only occurs with or after hepatitis B infection and produces more severe disease more rapidly than hepatitis B alone. Hepatitis C is another viral infection that we talk about. It's transmitted parenterally via blood transfusions or IV drug use, but is not sexually transmitted. 75% of infections are asymptomatic, but unlike hepatitis B, it actually leads to a much higher rate of chronic infection, at least 50%. And again, that matters because about 20% of those chronically infected will develop other complications like hepatitis or cirrhosis. And last but not least is hepatitis E. Again, this is very rare in the United States, more common in other countries, um, usually due to poor sanitation, um, such as fecal contamination of drinking water. It's usually self-limited, but it's important to note that in pregnancy, there's a notably high maternal mortality rate approaching 20%, particularly in the third trimester. In terms of testing for the hepatitis, we would test for hepatitis A with IgM antibodies to detect an acute infection, and IgG will show us that either there has been a past infection or vaccination. Hepatitis B is the one that has um, all those things that we learned about in medical school. So remember initially to check for hepatitis B surface antigen, which is on the surface of the virus and circulates freely in the serum. You can also look for things like hepatitis B E antigen, which only occurs when there is extremely high viral load and means that there's active viral replication. Other things that you can also look for are things like the hepatitis B C core antibody. The antigen, remember, only is present in the liver cells and does not circulate in the serum. We will be posting this on the website. If someone has hepatitis B surface antigen in pregnancy, this should prompt further workup, things like liver function tests, as well um, as testing for other hepatitis. Finally, hep C is diagnosed by detection of the hep C antibody. It may not be present until six to 10 weeks after the onset of clinical illness. And then you can also detect it via a viral RNA load. Prevention and treatment for hepatitis A, there is a vaccine, and that vaccine is recommended for adults at increased risk of infection or complications from liver diseases. We can also treat those who are exposed with post-exposure treatment with both the HAV vaccine as well as immune globulin. Hepatitis B is basically the same thing. Again, vaccination is your primary defense and is recommended for all of us as healthcare workers, though also for folks who are at particularly increased risk. You can receive the Hep A and Hep B vaccines together in a combination vaccine or separately. 
And importantly, this vaccine is not contraindicated in pregnant folks. It's actually recommended if a patient is at risk for infection. Post-exposure for hepatitis B is the exact same as for hepatitis A, though you're just going to give the hep B vaccine in combination with immune globulin within 24 hours of exposure, but not more than 14 days after. In terms of treatment for hepatitis, in most pregnant patients with acute hepatitis, they can be managed as outpatients with supportive management unless they have severe disease that leads to things like encephalopathy, coagulopathy, or otherwise severe debilitation. Patients should avoid things like upper abdominal trauma because of um, liver enlargement, and they should also avoid contact with other household members and sexual partners unless they've been treated or have received appropriate prophylaxis. Finally, with perinatal transmission, for hepatitis B, it's the single largest cause of chronically infected individuals worldwide, and so we care a lot about preventing perinatal transmission if we can. The mom doesn't have any prophylaxis, 10 to 20% of seropositive women will transmit that virus onto the baby. If an acute infection occurs in pregnancy, there's ultimately a higher risk of transmission later in gestation, meaning if someone contracts the virus in a third trimester, it's more likely that their baby will become infected versus someone who contracts the virus in the first trimester. If mom's B status is unknown to prevent infection for the baby, the baby should get immune globulin as well as hep B vaccine within 12 hours of birth. With respect to labor management, generally speaking, fetal scalp electrodes and early amniotomy are not recommended due to the risk of perinatal transmission. Um, Breastfeeding is, though, okay with hepatitis B, as long as cracked nipples are not present and the baby has received that hepatitis B vaccination. In terms of hepatitis C, unlike hepatitis B, ACOG does not recommend universal screening of hepatitis C, but does recommend screening in those that are at increased risk. The vertical transmission rate is notably lower in hepatitis C, but it is still 2 to 8% with moms who have detectable levels of HCV RNA in the blood, though it is rather rare if viral load is undetectable. Unfortunately, unlike hepatitis B, there's no preventative measures to lower the risk of vertical HCV infection to neonates during pregnancy. Again, in labor, this should not alter the mode of of delivery. So if a patient is able to have a vaginal delivery, they should still be able to have a vaginal delivery despite the hep C diagnosis. Um, for patients during labor, again, we want to recommend uh, trying to avoid FSC as well as early amniotomy and episiotomy if possible. And hepatitis C is not a contraindication for breastfeeding postpartum. All right. So I think that does it for today's podcast. Thanks again, Amy, for joining us. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher may be and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram or Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to support us, head on over to patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, send us some love, we'll send you some swag. For show notes for this show and every other show, as well as that chart with all of those different antigens for hepatitis B, go ahead and go into our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Finally, if you have a question for us, a question for Amy, or want to get in touch with any of us, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.